Welcome to the CDC Podcast, Episode 28. I'm your host, Eric Swain, and with me this time is Unwinnable founder and editor-in-chief, Stu Horvath. Hi. Before Unwinnable became a weekly magazine, I believe, around this time last year, it was a website. Can you like give us like the history behind the initial inception of Unwinnable? Sure can. Basically, I sort of got the idea right around the time that uh, Kill, not Kill Screen, that Crispy Gamer was going out, and it just seemed a bummer that such a great sort of writerly website about video games was sort of going away. So uh, I just sort of, sort of decided, well, maybe I could fill that void, put together a blog, and it quickly stopped being a blog and sort of became like a whole bunch of people writing for it. Uh, and that was uh, five years ago. We just celebrated in May our fifth anniversary. We've just sort of been dedicated to finding like the weirdest, best, most heartfelt stories about games and other kinds of culture and publishing them because no one else wanted to. And after four years, what, what inspired the change to go to an e-zine format? So that was born out of greed. <laughs> it was a stupid idea, really, because there's no money to be made. But no, it, it, it was, it's just, it, it was, we've been doing it for so long that, you know, I, I got to a point where it needed to either start generating money at least a little bit of money, or we were I would have to kind of scale back on it. It was sort of the point where it's like, is this going to be your job now, or you know, are you going to work at a deli? And the option chosen was? Oh, make it my job. Yeah, I do this full-time now. So it's, uh, it's scary as hell, and I don't make a lot of money, and things are very touch-and-go, but uh, we're making a go of it. And this is like sort of the second or third year that I've been freelance and not had a real job which is terrifying. You got Unwinnable started as it is. You kick-started it. Ha-ha. Uh-huh. Yes. How did that process go? Uh, you're going to hear me say the word terrifying a lot, <laughs> I think, in this interview. Yeah, the Kickstarter was it was crazy. We worked on building the campaign for, I guess, two, three months before we launched. We launched it the, uh, the first day of GDC, so I think we started like the second week of January and basically worked full-time on putting together the campaign, which was nerve-wracking, and we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And then we launched the campaign and realized that we kind of still didn't know what we were doing, but we were sort of riding this roller coaster to the very end. Somehow, it looked really good in the first couple days, and then we had a little bit of a a rough midsection, and then we managed to raise $15,000 in three days to make our numbers. And then... That's the normal Kickstarter arc. You get a huge spike in the beginning, tapers off, and then there's the huge rush at the end. Yeah, and you know that going in, and people tell you that, but when you're in it, especially when you're in that that dry spell in the middle of the the second week, it's the worst. It's totally soul-crushing and depressing because you think that this is it. We've done it, and we put ourselves out there, and no one cares, and it's it's over. Like We may as well just pack it up, you know? the worst part is is that you can usually tell within like the first three days if it's going to succeed or not. You have to at minimum like get a full third within like the first day or so. Yeah, and I don't think we did actually. We made about five grand, which was pretty. I think you were like so close to the cusp that it really like even I, like I I pledge my bit, and then of course you always check in to see okay, am I actually going to have to pay this? Yeah, yeah. Am I going to have to shuffle money around? And then you look at it, you realize. 
I don't know. It, like most, you can tell immediately. This one is it could or it could not. It was it was weird, and I'm actually getting like that pit of the stomach like nausea. <laughs> just thinking about it. But what was interesting is that unlike other Kickstarter campaigns, you didn't just try to put the message out there and desperately tweet and Facebook and try and get people to retweet you and drum up support. You actually put on a show <laughs> those last few days. Yeah, the the, uh, the telethon. You went, you went full to the wall on this. <laughs> and it's actually something that I think has been imitated by some people since. It was fun, it was, and it was born sort of out of, I guess, desperation. I, you know, none of the choices, the decisions that we made in the middle of the campaign, like I don't remember how they happened. I was so short on sleep. I was so high stress that I don't, I don't remember how any of these things happened. I just remember one weekend, Ken, our producer for our, our podcast, came over and we, we spent an afternoon trying to figure out how to set up this streaming setup so that we could do you know, a 12-hour or all-night Twitch stream with guests. And somehow that worked. And I, I, you know, we've gone back to try and like do live streams of our podcast and those haven't worked <laughs> using the same equipment. And I don't know what the hell we did that made this thing so magical. And, and, and that's how we ran, we raised, we raised about $5,000 every night that we did that. And it was, you know, no sleep, lots of booze. It was crazy, which is the unwinnable way, really. <laughs> I'm glad you made it though. I'm glad you made it all the way. Thank you. Thank you. I guess to get to the actual content of it, it's like not I get the format has changed and the delivery has changed of Unwinnable, but not much has changed about the content. I guess yeah. if we're going to put it that way. So from the beginning, what was it you were looking for in what you published at Unwinnable? So I wasn't actually I've never actually looked. That, that's the funny thing about Unwinnable. I've never looked for anything specific. I've just sort of done what I do and sort of made the site reflective of my aesthetics, and I wrote stuff, you know, that I thought was, you know, basically I just wrote the things that I wanted to write and then other people thought it was cool. And the thing that makes Unwinnable Unwinnable is sort of this weird collaboration between the two, you know, me and what people perceive Unwinnable to be. Like, basically, every pitch that I get is pretty good and is almost always what you would call an unwinnable story. And it's sort of like pornography, you know, it when you see it. And it's always kind of worked like that. We've, I've never really set out any kind of really hard guidelines about what we were looking for. And that's nice. It, it's nice to have people actually get it, you know, and, and just sort of get on your vibe so completely and send you really awesome stories. And it's all basically rooted in, I want to publish the things that I want to read, and nobody else really publishes. For instance? Uh, I mean, everything that Jed Frank wrote for me <laughs> it's sort of the perfect <laughs> example of that it's just like we would chat and then all of a sudden i would have well she she wouldn't even actually send me full drafts she would actually compose a lot of her stories in instant message windows and i would just be reading this stuff and it was amazing and it was just so much fun to like she was writing stuff that i wanted to read and it was just and you know at, at that point you know jen had sort of done a little bit of stuff for kill screen and then fell out of it and you know nobody was really publishing stuff like that now pe- more people are and I'm trying to find other weird stuff to publish. The the scope of Unwinnable does go outside of video games. Oh, absolutely. Almost as soon as I started, you know, building a blog dedic- or a website dedicated to video games, like the last thing I wanted to write about was video games. So we just sort of opened it up from the very beginning. I don't think that I mean video games one of the problems with video games I think is that people think that it exists in a video game bubble on you know all sides of the industry and it doesn't. 
you know, there's bleed over from all sorts of aspects of culture. And, you know, I think it's really healthy to like things that are, uh, you know, other mediums and think about them. And I do, and I'm sure other people do, but you, you don't really get that on other video game sites, uh, I don't think. Um, so I've always thought it was very important to sort of, to find, you know, intersections between other medium, media, rather. So how did Unwinnable grow from the beginning? It start, you say it started as your own personal blog, but where did it come about from there? Because you now have like, uh, like a stable of regular writers contributing to you. Yeah, we've had something like 100 or 150, maybe 200 now, people who have actually written for us. And out of that, there's like between 20 and 40 who are, you know, fairly regular. When we started off at the very beginning, it was just me. And uh, I was working at the New York Daily News and kind of faking it as their video game critic. And some of the other nerdy folks there liked, you know, had opinions that didn't really fit with, you know, Daily News style. Like, like we did, they didn't run op-eds. It was all very formal reviews or features. So they wanted to write some op-ed stuff for me. And it sort of went from there. After my colleagues at the Daily News were writing for me, my friends, you know, the people that I grew up with and have hung out with for years, were all had at least one or two good stories in them. And, and you know, they played journalist for a little bit and got them in. And then we sort of just grew from there. You know, I tried to pick up some people from Crispy Gamer, as I said. We got some crossover from our friends at Killscreen, and it just sort of happened organically. I think it was GDC 2012. Like, for some reason, all of a sudden, everybody was very interested in what I was doing and wanted to write for me. And that's how, like, you know, Jen Frank got involved and Brian Taylor and Richard Clark and Chris Dolan. Like, that's how I met all those folks. And that was, like, my first real, my first wave of really solid, solid writers came out of that. So it was all word of mouth, basically. And they continue to write for you to this day? Uh, you know, or? some people come and go, like Brian Taylor has sort of fallen out. Chris Dolan certainly has fallen out. He's much more focused on, he's just busy with his job. That happens to a lot of people. They get these real jobs and then they have to do them <laughs> instead of playing around and being writers. So people come and go, you know, but like Gus Mastrapa has been with me for years and years and he's like my, one of my best friends and, you know, I don't think that he's going to leave anytime soon. It all depends on the the folks and but I'm always looking for new people too you know and it's always interesting to find that neat mix of new and old you know it I think it would have been there was a point where you know it seemed like everybody who was writing for me that made it special for me kind of left and had other things to do and were distracted by other projects and it was really depressing because it was just sort of like ah you know I don't want to I don't want to run that I don't want to run people down but it, I think as an outlet or as like a, a place for Storytelling, you, you constantly need a churn of writers to sort of keep things fresh and interesting. And, you know, those, those old people come back and then new people come in and they mix ideas in weird and surprising ways, you know? Was there anything that particularly, like, overjoyed you or from just being completely unexpected that came across your plate? Through, over the course of the whole shebang? Sure. <laughs> All of it, honestly. <laughs> The fact that, I mean, I am making some small living off of this, you know, the fact that people actually give a shit, I've never, I've, it's always been extremely humbling to have anybody take any kind of interest in, you know, what I'm doing. And what I'm doing is, I don't think of it as anything particularly interesting or important. It's just sort of me being stubborn about what I want to read. And I feel like I would probably do something. It's just, it's interesting. It, it's always been awesome that people pay attention and 
seem to actually care about what I have to say about things or and, and what our reader what our writers have to say about things and we've always had a small but you know really positive thoughtful community which is sort of incredibly rare on the internet and yeah so that basically existing that's that's the most amazing thing about this how do you feel about your particular niche within I I want to say like the critical community but like just broader I guess cultural critical community. Um, I, I don't know. I, I like this is one of those things that my opinion changes maybe hourly. You know, <laughs> you wake up one day and it's like, hey, everything's great. And then you you somebody tweets something and you're like, this industry sucks. You know, and I think that's sort of true. There's so many things going on in the internet, in publishing, in games, in other media. You know, I think it's all very fast paced and mercurial, and I think that. More than anything, Unwinnable is sort of a function of my own stubbornness to just stick it out one more day. Um, sometimes, you know, right now I'm, I'm I'm super positive. We have a lot of cool stuff going on, so like I'm really excited. Uh, if you talked to me <laughs> in January when I wanted to jump out a window, you know, I would have said that everything is terrible and there's no point in doing it. Please don't ever start writing about video games because that's the worst thing you could possibly do with your life. And you know, like I said, those things seem to change hourly. Since the switchover to Unwinnable Weekly, can you explain the stuff that gets published on site now? Caprice. Uh, so basically we have the last week's comics, which I just don't publish in the in the magazine because it sort of comes in too late. It would be actually two weeks ago's comics if it was showing up in the magazine. Other than that, I try to do a mix of reprints, full reprints, and then excerpts. And it's all sort of, you know, a little push and pull. You know, I try and keep the full reprints to stuff that is timely, like David Wilinski writing about E3 or GDC or me complaining about the Shenmue Kickstarter or, you know, David Carlton yelling at me about me complaining about the Shenmue Kickstarter. Like, I like to have that stuff out there so everybody can read it without a subscription because I think it's important to still be part of the conversation. And then other stuff that's a little bit more evergreen, I try and keep as excerpts that, you know, we put a little bit out there and, and hopefully we get, you know, people to buy the issues or subscribe off of, you know, just a little bit of that sample. How do you make the determination of what you think will resonate larger audience to bring them into the magazine? Uh, I wish I had like a really fancy answer for this, but I basically just make it up as I, I it's like, it's all guts. You know, I, I don't have any particular plan. I work, every time I do an issue, I think that I select four stories and then change that selection, you know, six or seven times before I decide that this feels right. I'm not too concerned about, I'm not trying to aim it towards, you know, a market. I'm just sort of trying to make what's the equivalent of a good mixtape. Sometimes that really works in surprising ways. Like the our Apocalypse issue was like by far our best-selling, and I think it was just timing with Mad Max, of course, you know, and some issues that I think are really great, nobody seems to mention or, or talk about until like three months later, and then everybody's talking about one story that, you know, I've completely forgotten about. But yeah, I'm not, I probably should be, but I'm not very interested in, in sort of capitalizing or marketing or, you know, making, you know, making a circus out of every issue or trying to find the way to, you know, SEO it to death. Uh, it's just, I'm not interested in that. I'm just interested in making each in individual issue kind of be as cool as possible. Sometimes that works, sometimes it might not, but I feel pretty good about all of the issues that we've put out so far. I guess off of that, what is the day-to-day -day work that goes into Unwinnable, or rather, 
is it has it changed to like a weekly schedule since the launch of the site? Um, yeah, I mean, well, not the site, the easy. Yeah, so yeah, <laughs> no, I mean, the site was always sort of a daily thing, but we could all of our stuff. Very, very rarely have we ever dabbled in things like news or previews or reviews or traditional content that was particularly timely. So we've always had the ability to sort of, if there was a period where we would prep the entire week of stuff on Sunday afternoon and that would be it. That's impossible now with the with the magazine. I kind of, it's, a, it's basically a full-time job. Mondays I pull, I look through stories and, and talk to my other editors and we've, you know, kind of chat through what should be in the issues and Tuesdays is basically dedicated to laying it out and, you know, finding art and making art, you know, and then production goes from there. Usually I try and reserve Wednesday as like a writing day or like a email day. And then Thursday is polish and Friday's release. So I'd say that any given issue takes about between 35 and 40 hours to actually put together. It goes through three, three waves of edit. The graphic design is pretty straightforward, but, you know, it's not so bad. It's a living. <laughs> Does it always come down that close to the wire? Uh, yeah, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> there was this beautiful moment, probably for the first four issues, where I was ahead by four issues, and that just whittled away and never got it back. But only once, maybe twice, has it really burned me, and it has only burned me. It hasn't been paid forward to other folks. I think I canceled one issue just because like, I had personal stuff, like my apartment got burgled. And that sucked. But even if the issue was ready, I probably would have canceled that issue because I wouldn't have been able to support it right. Yeah, I mean, I've always been a seat-of-my-pants guy. And, you know, I, I worked for 10 years in, you know, newspapers, daily, you know, content. So, you know, that tight deadline doesn't really you – know, a, week, a week deadline, that's like luxury after the daily news, you know? Do you have, like, backup essays just in case something that you schedule to go in there into an issue just doesn't come in on time from a writer? Oh, for sure. Actually, most of the stuff that we, we publish has been written three months in advance. We have, like, a, a pipeline with, like, a stack of stories in it, and that's how I'm constantly, like, changing them and deciding, you know. Yeah, uh, the only stuff that is really sort of super timely are the columns, the, the, the regular features. So, like, Matt Marone's Rookie of the Year and Gus's uh, Dungeon Crawler are the ones that kind of get filed that day. But those guys are old hands, so I, I trust them to not, you know, blow a deadline on. Yeah. But uh, it does change the content to something, like, more long-lasting written form? I think so. I think that, you know, even when stuff comes in that's very, like, of the moment, we try and edit it back to something that will last. Like, we were talking before you were recording, like, you're you're a little bit behind on the on the magazine and reading the back issue. So you're like a couple issues back. And I think that's true of most people who are subscribers. Life gets in the way and you just, you know, you, you get a backlog. I think it's, it's really helpful to not be writing stuff of the moment. And even if you are writing stuff of the moment to sort of pin it to much larger philosophical things that will remain relevant, you know, months or years down the line. Now, early on, you decided to publish a special non-numbered issue. Yes. Known as, what was it, the Summer Issue, I believe <laughs> it was? the Summer Fun Spectacular or something silly like <laughs> that, yeah. And later I see there was a holiday one as well. Yep. So was the process different there? Because that was in addition to the normal weekly issue, wasn't it? Um, technically, no. It was, it, it was released in sequence. It, I believe it's the fifth issue, the Summer Fun Special. And, you know, it, it's free now, and the holiday issue is free. But, I mean, I don't know. It, like, 
numbers, volumes, man, why you gotta be so outside? No, I, like, I don't, <laughs> like, last summer it was, it was just a delirious weekend and we were just talking about how 4th of July was coming and, well, why don't we do a summer fun issue and just be totally goofy about it? And we threw together a whole bunch of vintage, you know, clip art and just got really, like, childishly, there's like a, a <laughs> there's like, connect the dots and word finds about Satan. Like it's, it's totally nuts. And, uh, I basically, it took like five days of me listening to nothing but Queens of the Stone Age and just putting together this mad issue that I don't think anybody really got at the time. And people like this summer, people seem to be like, Oh, okay. I got this now. But at the time people were just like, what's wrong with you? Can I have some of those drugs? <laughs> also like twice as long as a normal unwinnable weekly <laughs> once we started going it was just everybody had so many idiotic ideas it was just you know let's well we can stuff another couple pages in yeah <laughs> you, you don't have any publisher or publishing uh machine that you have to deal with it's all like exactly you know i mean one day i would love to have this stuff in print but until then you know make it as long as possible yeah, and the Christmas issue was sort of the same idea, but scaled back because everybody has less time during the holidays. I mean, I think the Christmas issue has like the the three kings, and it's it's King Kong, King Ghidorah, and uh, King somebody else. <laughs> Maybe King Hippo. I don't remember. <laughs> anyway, it's ridiculous. And what about the recent greatest hits issue? Oh, so for the story bundle. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, basically Simon Carlos asked us to be in the the story bundle and. The requirement was to have something that was on sale or otherwise unavailable to readers. So I went back and kind of compiled what I thought was the best of the first six months. So everything from uh, issue 1 to 25, uh, writing about games. And this one I did have a little bit of a cap. I could only have so many pages because they needed to go to e-readers and such. So, you know, unfortunately I could have put all the games writing in. Uh, There's a couple stories that we didn't put in that I... Really regret not having in there, but then we wrapped it all together, put a put a new cover on it by Dina Karam, uh, got Gerard Way from My Chemical Romance to do the intro, and Bob's your uncle, and it's going right now. I think the sales are good. They don't tell me stuff like that though. <laughs> uh, you should support it. Everybody should support it because you get that and twenty one other books, and the charity portion goes to Pixels up in Montreal, which is all about getting women into gaming. So it's good stuff. Shilling over. Yes, <laughs> like this whole thing isn't a show. Oh, you know. <laughs> so, what about the non-written work that gets put on the site? What do you mean, like the uh, audio, visual, games? I do remember you put right in the middle there. Here is a game that was designed especially for Unwinnable. That's right. That's right. We do that. I, <laughs> I forget about that somewhat sometimes. So yeah, we have we do a lot of podcasts. Unlistenable is our our banner show. We also, which is just us talking about, you know, where we parked and what we had for lunch, and occasionally games. We also have the Josh and Jay show with Rowan Kaiser, which is a much better podcast than our crazy, you know, mess. I believe you stole that from a real radio station. What the Josh and Jay show? Yeah. I don't know what exactly they always had. Like they shared it with the, a radio station, or I was never quite sure how that deal worked. But yeah, we yeah we stole them. <laughs> <laughs> We recently released my Drunken Dungeons and Dragons podcast, which was for a moment called Undungeonable. It is now called Eye of the Beer Holder. We do some video stuff. We try and Twitch stuff, and and then games. We've had over the last couple of years, we've had a series of games which is called Playable, 
uh, which we were going to call it unplayable, but then we figured, well, nobody would actually click on that, right? We've had a bunch of people develop games for us. Uh, Pippin Bar's done two, which Ian Snyder has done one, which is sort of an interactive musical toy. Kara Ellison did this blistering uh, twine game called Sacrilege. We have a, another twine game that's about the, uh, the love affair between Hulk Hogan, Hulk Hogan and Fabia, which was born of the, the Kickstarter telethon, some delirious conversations at the the tail end of that. And it was it, the, the idea behind Playable was that we're not just interested in playing games, we're interested in, in sort of talking to people about how they're made and their process. So like Pip and Bar's games, Jostle Bastard and Jostle Parent, for both of them we have extensive sort of development diaries and sort of his existential crises tied up with, you know, making those games and his notebooks and anything that he was willing to share with us, we printed because you don't really get to see that stuff. Even in indie development, most of that stuff is people either don't care or gets tidied up by PR and, you know, I like seeing the process. So the idea behind Playable is you get to look at the process and then you get to play the process. Just poking at those edges to see what you can get away with. Yeah, you know, you never know, really. And we have a lot more games in that little section than, than I ever really thought would happen. And we have a couple more coming. Teddy Dyfenbach has, uh, of uh, Hyperlight Drifter is working on one. Richard Hoffmeyer has something that is in the works. Uh, so, you know, always, always more. Do you solicit them specifically, or do people come with you with these ideas? I, I was more, I was more solicitous. Is that a word? Yeah, that is. I was more solicitous when we launched it. I find that I don't have a lot of free time anymore with the magazine, so projects like that, even podcasts, are a little bit harder to do. But then I, I you know, did, I also haven't been to a conference in a in a year, so next time I see folks, I'll be at PAX. Maybe I'll I'll pester somebody to make something for us. No, this is somewhat of a side issue, mm. maybe not as important, but several of your writers and the pieces that have been put in on Winnable have been nominated for the Games Journalism Prize. Yeah, that was pretty cool. I, I don't know what happened last year. I didn't really, I didn't I wasn't aware of it last year. But 2013, we had like a, a slew of nominations, and then Jen Frank won, so that was cool. So how does it feel to your work editing led to it? Oh, it was, that had nothing to do with that. It was all Jen Frank. <laughs> so you don't feel like there's a guiding hand in editing to make something better? I mean, I, of course I do, but I'm not going to say that on a podcast <laughs> that people are going to listen to. Oh, nobody listens to this. <laughs> there you go. I can't prove it either way. I don't know what the stats are. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, it, it's nice, but I, I don't, you know, rewards, man. They're such a drag. You know, you want them, and then you win one, and you're like, what's this all about? I don't feel any different. You know, it, it, was, totally, it, it was totally cool. It, it was a very interesting thing to have happen, you know. And I think, but, I, you know, most of the credit goes to Jen and everybody else who was nominated for just writing awesome stuff. Do I provide a place where that stuff's, you know, welcome? And, you know, do I help it along? Yeah, I guess. But, you know, I'm not the primary mover and shaker in, in the greatness of the stuff that comes out, you know. Why unwinnable as a name? <laughs> I have this note written down here because you you mentioned that like everything begins with an un and ends with an able. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, it's a, it's a good naming convention. Once you have the unwinnable, you may as well just run with it, right? We have we had a we ran a ran a story about pickles called unpickleable. Come on, it's funny. Yeah, why unwinnable in the first place? Um, un it was, uh, you know, it, it 
I mean, on the one hand, I was just looking for a really catchy name. On the other hand, I loved adventure games and, and text adventures as a kid. And uh, when I learned about the idea of the mechanism of making a game unwinnable, which is why we have the Vulture logo, it's it's a King's Quest reference. You know, you get this pie. Yeah. And you eat the pie, the game, you lose the game. You give the pie to a starving vulture, you lose the game. Like, anything you do with this pie, like, you get it at the beginning of the frickin' game. Other than throw it into the Yeti's face. At the very end, to knock them off the <laughs> cliff. Like, it defies all logic. I don't do that. Why would you do that to people? Why would you be so mean? But... <laughs> and it's something that doesn't happen anymore, and you know, or not really, or not intentionally anyway. And but it was always sort of an interesting thing, you know. If you eat the garlic in Zork, it happens too, and you could just wander around Zork forever, never knowing that you had broken the game, that you had done something that that would prevent you from finishing it. I always thought that was a cool concept, and you know, I did, wasn't thinking about it at the time. But it's also kind of a cool concept to like apply that to cultural criticism. Like you're never done. There's always something else to think about, to tie it into, to you know, every new piece of work kind of informs the previous pieces of work. So it's sort of, you know, like Superman and the unwinnable uh, never ending fight, except we're fighting for good ideas <laughs> or something. <laughs> this is water, I swear, it's not whiskey. <laughs> Probably should have been. <laughs> it's a little Ooh, excuse me. <laughs> you wouldn't be the first person to be drinking on the podcast. A little early and it's a little hot. Mm. So that's why unwinnable. And it's a catchy name. Yeah. It definitely works for the large for it definitely lurks into the larger ecosystem. <laughs> oh, I I've heard of that. That doesn't sound like anything else. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I think uh, we had so many I had so many other like video game names that were just terrible and it's good that I can't remember any of them off the top of my head like damage bonus no nobody wants to read a magazine called damage bonus stop that you know or whatever you know charisma plus one it also doesn't lock you into anything yeah yeah I mean it's still it's pretty gamey but you know it's it's gamey in a way I'm comfortable with Something that stretches out to the like the larger knowledge base. Oh, I understand winning. Yeah, and I, I understand un un and able, <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we un and able onto everything we do. This is something that just fascinates me with publications that this entire series, and it's the covers and how like a lot of both uh, the books and other periodicals go out of their way to do something very like striking or iconic with what they do with their covers. You have more covers than I think anyone else hmm. I've interviewed here. And there's such a variety. Who does them? Or is it just whoever you can grab that week? I mean, I would say that probably 75% of it is just me repurposing, you know, or designing with like elements. What do you call it? Creative commons, uh, you know, imagery, my own photography or, or supplied you know, stills and stuff. Amber Harris and Chris Martinez are sort of what I would call our in-house illustrators as they have time, you know, uh, or if I see something that's super cool for them. I, like our Choose Your Own Adventure cover is probably still my favorite, and that was Amber. And, like, she, she she's just one of those artists I could say, hey, can you take the first Choose Your Own Adventure cover and keep the exact same composition except change all of the creatures in it? 
And she was like, yes, this is the best thing I could, you know, you could ever ask me to do. Turned it around in like a day and like melted my face off with the results. And, oh, was it? Oh yeah, choose your own adventure. I was I was thinking of the the one you did that looked like a D and D module. Oh, see that one was all me, and I I actually yeah that's just a D and D module cover of me ripping off those old <laughs> designs. And I got I happen to have we run a, a twice a year sort of creative flea market called Geek Flea, and he's one of the artists that was looking for a table right at that moment. And I was just like, I don't have tables, but you want to do this because you would be perfect for this module art. And yeah, it's sort of it's sort of a mix. But I think 90% of it is, is just me sort of kind of coming up with something that, you know, works on the fly. We don't have a huge amount of money to pay artists, unfortunately. So I have to be kind of judicious with what we ask them to do. But, you know, I mean, Amber and Chris have been so integral, I think, to the look of the magazine overall that they should definitely get a, a super shout out. Is it like the articles and that you have a stable of covers waiting to find an issue to go with? Or do, is it inspired by the final internal composition of what you chose to work with? Uh, you know, I'm looking through them, and I think there's only maybe one that is not tied directly to a story within the issue. And even... No. No, I think everything is... It's always tied to a story. I have often thought about doing covers that have nothing to do with the issue but that makes my brain feel funny so i've not done that yet but how far ahead of time do you like have these covers done because art takes a while to complete i mean like i i sort of have a good idea of you know the stories that are are in the queue so when i see something that that looks like like it's definitely a cover story and it's definitely like an amber style cover you know I, i just send it to her they're actually they're super fast, which is one of the things that makes them super awesome, is that, you know, you could you could totally get turn around in like a week or two, which is you know And they have a and many of them have a base simplicity to them. Yeah. It's like they're 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 really beautiful, Thank but you. they're very simple in their design. Yeah. I mean I'm I'm sort of a minimalist, I think, when it comes to design. I I don't like a lot of elements. As a photographer, I've always been like a real close up detail oriented macro kind of photographer. Like a like, I take pictures of, like, rust spots, not, like, landscapes. So I think that that sort of plays into, like, the overall aesthetic. The And, you know, you said that they're varied, and that's mostly because, like, I get bored easily. And I just, I want to, I'm constantly changing, you know, what I want to see. Yeah. I think, like, the one exception to that simplicity thing would be the summer issue, where you have an entire Revolutionary War <laughs> battle going on. But even that is, that's a Howard Pyle painting from, like, a bazillion years ago. And it, it's sort of like, like, I try and... Like, I think that there's, like, there's like this strange sort of uh, almost paradoxical undercurrent of me using really old things to illustrate video game-related content, which I don't know if anybody else has noticed that, but it amuses me no end to, like, use a you know, Renaissance painting in relationship and juxtapose it to, like, a story about, you know, Merit. Merit Coppice? I think I used that. Anyway, you know, talking about, like, twine design and, you know, I like those juxtapositions. I'm quite familiar with creating things that nobody else will get <laughs> and attaching it to something else. I do it with all these podcasts all the time. There you go. I mean, I, thir- nobody gets the titles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Thursday, I said, was for polish, but what polish really means is noodling with all the things that matter to me and doesn't matter to anybody else. But that's the things you never notice, and that makes it what it is. It gives it character. I, I agree. And you'll, 
and you'll never be able to point it, like to hold it down, the specific thing, but it's there. I have doing something. Yeah, I have all of these very idiosyncratic typesetting twitches that I know no one is conscious of. I missed one in a recent issue, and it drives me nuts to know that it's out there in the world and I can't change it now. <laughs> well, you can. It's not like you issue a recall. You just update the PDF. Yeah, but it's that's sort of contingent upon people downloading it again. You know, they, Well, if they are behind. Well, this is true. This is true. I mean, I did fix it, but I don't... <laughs> it didn't quite scratch the itch as well as I hoped it would. What about the internal design? It's like... It isn't just like putting a website onto a like digital page. There is actual effort that goes into the composition between image and and text, as well as changing the color text so you can read it when it comes on top of an image. Mm-hmm. And all of that stuff is sort of tailored directly to the story. I feel like the first couple, uh, the first handful of issues were extra designy on my part, which was a a lot of intense, you know, hours, you know, in InDesign fiddling with stuff. And I also don't think I don't think it gave the text uh, enough room to breathe. Like I, I've, since the fall, I've sort of been sort of just sort of pulling back on how I design and lay out issues, just because I don't want I want as few as few distractions from the text as possible. But I do want it to still feel, a, you know, a little bit fuller, a little bit more magaziney. Uh, I'm not trained. I don't have any formal training as, as a designer, so I really am just making this stuff up as I go along and making what looks right to me and just sort of asking questions like that and trying to solve them. Uh, I don't know if it works, I, but I think that things have a good vibe. You know, I don't really get a lot of feedback. People just say, like, oh, they look great. So I, I, I guess I'm doing something right. I don't get a lot of feedback on the side. Another thing I know very much about. Uh, so it's instinct-based? Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely instinct-based, and it's it's going off of cues in my head that make sense. Like, you know, the, we did the story on, on sonar and that's a uh, submarine game. And it was just like, Oh, well we'll make, you know, you know, the text green, like this, like the radar screen. And, you know, we'll try and like, I'll try and make that work. Like, did it really? I, I don't know, but like, it makes sense to me on some level. So I'm hoping that it makes sense to other people. Like, and, and even the picture is, it's actually a radar screen. It has nothing to do with sonar, but <laughs> It, it felt right to me, so I, I hope that nobody, you know... I mean, nobody wrote a letter complaining, so, again, I, I guess I'm doing okay. Also, I've noticed some of the stranger recurring content, like the Ask a Space Marine <laughs> yeah. column. Is that your particular brand of humor? That asks... Well, I mean, that that's Aurelius's sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> Are you asking if I am Aurelius? I am not, sir. <laughs> I absolutely am not. That would be disingenuine. I get those from the future, from a space marine, sir. The other thing I really enjoy is the ongoing fiction story you've been publishing. Gus's Dungeon Crawler? Yeah. I love it so much. And I'm glad that you enjoy it because, again, it's something that I hear nothing on. And I don't really know how to promote it, I feel, adequately uh, online. Because well, the, the old-fashioned way is once it's finished here, you wrap it up and make it its own book. Well, that's that's absolutely the plan. But like on the every other week-to-week basis, I feel like it's sort of impossible to promote because we're so deep into it. But people, every once in a while, like I'll, I'll have a protracted conversation like this about the weekly, and people will just be like, Gus's story is awesome. 
and and I, that makes me feel good, and it will make Gus feel good when I tell him as soon as we get off the phone. <laughs> well, it's not just the story, though. I think I think it. There are points where it gets a little stalled. Yeah. Because you have like last time on. Yeah. Look forward to, and you realize, wait a minute, that's that's a full half of what's written here. <laughs> it, it's the idea that we are getting this like this serialized storytelling that died out long before I was born. Yeah. And it's now coming back, and it, it's kind of exciting. It says, "Oh, it's old, but it's new." Yeah, it's nice to to experience it firsthand as it happens. Yeah, I love I love it when when he files because I get to read it, and then it's one of my happy happy things every two weeks. And I, I feel like we've gotten to a point where we sort of finished the first act, and I think that everything that happened in the last couple installments was just so riveting. It's just I had no idea what was going to happen. You know, there's the Rat King, and then there's these bugbears, and you know, people, things are dying, and there's poop everywhere. And, oh, God, it was so good. When this wraps up, do you plan to tr- get someone else to write a piece of fiction like this? Or in this manner, not specifically like this? Yeah, actually, I, I mean, I don't have any idea. I mean, Gus is sort of, you know, the the conceit of Dungeon Crawler is is, is it's just like, like a, a coming-of-age story in a dungeon. So, you know, Daisy's, what, 11? So she's got... Quite a few years that she could continue to go on being trapped underground. <laughs> Sounds incredibly <laughs> cruel. <laughs> Fun fact, Gus pitched this idea to me when we started putting together the Kickstarter campaign. Two weeks before we launched the Kickstarter campaign, I met my future fiance, who is also named Daisy. Uh, so this idea that Gus is writing a story about a character named Daisy and I'm engaged to a Daisy has made for some very interesting conversations over the last year. Daisy. <laughs> Daisy. <laughs> yeah. So, but yes, I would like to do more stuff like this. Actually, Corey Milne has pitched something extended serialized story like this that I still haven't read. Sorry, Corey. And, but I, you know, I would love to do more stuff like this. We've had a little, a couple dalliances with fiction, and I think it's been well received. Do you have like an open submission process? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's something that we at Critical Distance are trying to promote with as many publications as possible. So, there you go. Yeah, I mean, we used to do just once a, one the first week of the month, but that just got silly. Yeah, if you got a good idea, just just send us the idea. You know, don't worry about. 500-word summary of what it would be about? Not even that much. Like, give me, like, the elevator pitch, and don't stand on ceremony or formality, because, like, you know, it's cool. Like, we're just talking. I, we, we rarely turn down a pitch. We, we, we try and work with, like I said, most of the pitches we just get are quality to begin with, uh, and then we just try and work to make them the best story possible. And I know that some people are intimidated because we've had some really fantastic professional writers work for us, but we also started, uh, you know... The, that first crop of writers that I worked with were my buddies who had no formal training in writing at all. And they, you know, had good ideas and, and wrote, you know, pretty good stuff uh, and learned a lot about how to write and edit. And I think that's a really important thing for an outlet like Unwinnable to do, uh, to, you know, help people write because everybody should write. What have you learned over the years doing Unwinnable? <sighs> and what are you continuing to learn? I mean, hmm, I've de- I've learned that I don't know much. I think that's the the, the big takeaway is that that every time I kind of think that I've got I got this thing figured out, there's always an incredible wrench in the works, and it's it's always something, you know, completely unexpected. 
that doesn't just upset my status quo. It's like this industry is is constantly being upset and in a state of upheaval. So that, by extension, makes it really hard to sort of exist within it, even on the outskirts, like Unwinnable does. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely learned. I've learned how to use InDesign. I'm, I, I feel like I've learned, you know, programs. I think I'm a better writer. Like, and all the stuff I've learned, all the stuff that comes from just doing this sort of thing day in day out which is sort of invaluable in a way and then not valuable at all in another which is sad because there's not really a huge market for these sort of skills so yeah and and most importantly i have learned to try and be happy despite all of that so try to be positive. not be absolutely terrified yeah you know and see, this is what I was talking about earlier. I said, like, I change my mind every, like, hour. It's been an hour. And I'm like, ah, you know, things, are, things aren't, aren't so bad. I'm not terrified now. <laughs> <laughs> Mercurial. Yep. Well, it's glad to hear that you represent the laid-back New Jersey slacker. Exactly. You do the parties at GDC every year. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm really bummed that we didn't. I didn't get out to GDC this year because those parties... The Unwinnable House. Yeah, Unhouse. <laughs> Unhouseable. Yeah. Well, no, that's our that's our hashtag. It's U, uh, hashtag U-N-H-A-U-S because we're weird. It's like our emergency network because, like, nobody actually knows everybody's phone number. It's like, oh, the toilet stopped up. Unhouse. And, like, oh, it's my bat phone. I got to fix that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I got the idea. We had done a house in Los Angeles for E3 a couple years back. And it was like ridiculously inexpensive, like $100, $150 each person, six people in this beautiful craftsman house in Echo Park. And it was just super comfortable. And like the vibe was so much better like than staying in a hotel. Like we had a kitchen and, you know, we could have people over and we had a porch and it was just beautiful and wonderful and changed the way we did shows because there's so many cool people that go to GDC. I was, I had got it in my head that I would, I would find the biggest, you know, rental that I could. So it's this like 16 bedroom monster on Golden Gate Park that we fill with games journalists and, and developers. We have a party in the Tenderloin at a amazingly shitty bar and uh it's just open to all free to the you know no tickets at the door or anything it's just everybody can come in and have a couple drinks and hang out and last time we had one like there were so many people that there was people like on the street like drinking like phil fish was drinking on the street in the tenderloin which was really weird so we start gdc with that crazy party and like at a dive bar and then we end with a much smaller soiree at the house which we invite indie developers to. So we basically take one developer or two developers per bedroom, set them up with their laptops, and have a whole bunch of other people kind of come in and play games. It's sort of like a mini conference. We've called it a salon in the past, because like the, like in the French sense. And it's always been a very cool, relaxing kind of way to end the show and actually play games and talk about games. Uh, we've had some great stuff there. We had that dragon cancer there two, three years ago, which was like mind blowing. Like everybody came out of that bedroom crying. Usually not a sentence you want to say positively. Well, yes, this is true. But in, in this case, yeah, wow. Yeah, and it's just it's it's always been cool. We also had the the counter spy guys there the last time. Like it's just always been an interesting mix of games. Yeah, it was a bummer that we couldn't do it this year because PAX was at the end of 
end of the week, so we we just couldn't schedule it right. So we'll do it next year. Damn those insidious schedules. Ugh, I have no idea how people survived because uh, South by Southwest was like the days after PAX, and oh god, I don't travel mm-hmm. anymore. Oh, <laughs> uh, to close things out, mm-hmm. well. To say the fluff question, and I'm not sure how hard hitting any of these questions are. What is your favorite video game of all time? Oh, oh. I don't know, man. I think I'm at the point where I just enjoy trolling people with this question. I'm not even being serious anymore. Yeah, like that's just every every single person gets this reaction. It's so hard because like they're so different and they've changed so much over the last forty years. You know, like like how do you how do you compare you know, Zork with Witcher 3. You know, they're, they're completely different in every single way. But I would, you know, I... And those, those are basically, like, the two, like... I loved Witcher 3, and, and I miss it so much. But I would say that Zork is probably, like... If you put a gun to my head like you just did, and you were going to make me, you know, <laughs> pick one, I would pick Zork. There's just something about it. And it's different from... I love the influence that it's had and how it has influenced things that are so different. Even Twine, like Twine is like a direct descendant, but it's so different in execution from what Zork was. And it's so important in the history of games, too. It's like a historical artifact. There's not a lot of games that I think are quite as important as Zork. And cool. Gru, man. Lurking in the dark. Gonna eat you. It's good stuff. Yeah, Zork. Reminds me of the, that little, that small form joke about Zork when you give it to a new player and he says, you're in the dark, there Gru's lying in the wait, and he goes like, quick snipe, Gru. I do not know quick snipe. <laughs> and the player just goes completely off at the text parser and then it says, you've been eaten by a Gru. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's good. So what's your favorite game? <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. Oh, come on! You didn't say the magic word. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> You're going to have to come on unlistenable. We'll grill you there. <laughs> well, thank you, Stu, for coming on thanks, thanks for Critical Distance Confab. I hope I, was, and what? I hope I wasn't too boring. No. Anyway, look at the show notes for to find. Please subscribe to Unwinnable. It is a great culture periodical thing. It's fun. And... Yeah, bye. It's been a blast. <laughs>